0: to be said about consuming technology remotely. Heck, the cloud is just that. Someone else stands up infrastructure and services, and you consume them. The upside, it's not my problem. Glorious. But what about taking this on for the desktop environment, which for many is their main daily working environment and something of a tug of war when it comes to ownership, management, and administration? In today's episode of the Datanauts, join us as we demystify the exotic world of end-user compute. I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And with me is my co-host who never shares his Twix bars, Ethan Banks, at ECBanks on Twitter. And this is the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this on all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at PacketPushers.net. So without any more preamble, let's get right into this and introduce our special guest, Sean Massey. Hello. Welcome to the show. Who are you? What do you do?
1: Hi, Chris. Hi, Ethan. Thanks for having me on. I'm Sean Massey. I'm a senior technical architect at AHEAD. My focus is mainly on virtual. You can find me on Twitter at Sean P. Massey and uh, TheVirtualHorizon.com.
0: Sweet. So let's dig into the easy question here. You know, end user compute, EUC, what is that at a high level? And what happened to the old name? Wasn't it VDI before? It sounded like a disease.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So in in some ways, actually, that's not wrong. VDI is kind of a disease when it comes to the data center and the infrastructure. But we can talk about that a little bit later. So what is end-user compute? I think the best way to explain that is it's almost like the digital last mile, right? You have your, your applications, you have your fancy storage, your networking, racks full of compute, and they're running all your business applications. Well, how do you get value out of those applications, right? You have to connect users to them. So end user computing is it's kind of this bubble that covers all the technology that your end users or business users utilize to access those applications and, and help the business drive value or, or, you know, make a profit. VDI is just a subset of that, right? It's taking your desktop or your laptop, utilizing it on some platform and putting it in your data center. Mm -hmm. It's one way of being able to securely deliver a desktop. But as we've seen over the last couple of years, the technology space has actually expanded. Five, 10 years ago, it was VDI from VMware, published applications from Citrix, and there wasn't much else around that. There were a couple of third-party players. Now, today we have these giant suites that cover everything from managing your iPhone or Android to managing your Windows 10 physical device to center. And, and that's kind of what end user computing has grown to encompass.
2: Okay, John, so you described a lot of things that, um, that are coming under the end user compute umbrella. But I'm kind of thinking about this from a world of like, I've got my MacBook and that's what I use to connect to the network and so on. So where's really the use case for, for EUC? Where are businesses lighting up EUC and that's the, that's the thing that they want to do?
1: It is places, right? Security is now a a, a big play. How do I manage these desktops? You know, especially when they're off the network or as I move stuff to the cloud and I kind of spin down my data center. Big thing is around, I think we can blame Apple for this because it's been what, 10, 11 years since they've come out with the iPhone. And since then, you know, everybody's wanted to have their own smartphone. They don't want to carry two devices. And now that's kind of carrying over into, in some environments or some businesses, to their desktop as well, right? Why do I need the company to give me a laptop when I have my own MacBook? And that's what I really like to use. So we see these unified endpoint management tools coming into play or VDI or published apps because people have this desire to use their own hardware. Businesses have a desire, obviously, to secure their data. So, it's kind of a great use case for enabling people to bring their own devices. The curmudgeon in me is like, no, you can't have your own device. Let's go
0: back to the old days when it's like, here's the computer I issued you, it's tethered securely to the LAN. That's all you get. You know, it's certainly (laughs) everyone feels really entitled. Although, at the same time, I do bring my own laptop to work and I have my own phone and I'm definitely drinking the champagne. So, I have no leg to stand on.
1: (laughs) And it's it's kind of funny because. Some of the environments we work in, uh, predominantly healthcare, right? You have doctors who are working on on on-call 24 by 7. They can't be at the hospital, may be required to do some sort of consult or look at some patient data at, you know, three o'clock in the morning. They're going to want to use their iPad or their MacBook or whatever device is available, but they still have to be HIPAA compliant. That's just one use case where we see where people are saying, yeah, I'm not going to top around for six different hospital systems where I have patients, you have to give me a way to use my own device.
0: What about public offerings for end user computer, or maybe it's specifically for VDI, but I'm sure the audience may have heard something from like Amazon with their virtual desktops and Microsoft and Google, you know, what are kind of some of the major offerings out there and what are they focused on the end user compute or specifically VDI?
1: There's two ways to answer this question, right? So first off, VMware and Citrix have their own public cloud offerings that build on what Amazon and Microsoft and Google have, essentially extensions of their core products. But in terms of traditional public cloud offerings, right now, Amazon probably has the most well developed. They have two services of their own, one which is full-fledged VDI, one which is kind of like a hybrid published apps sort of solution. And they're focused mainly on the desktop or the application. They're not doing any of this user device management. It's kind of doing a little bit of everything. They have offerings in Azure. They were doing some stuff partnered with Citrix. They're in the process of introducing their own, but they also have services like Intune for managing the endpoint.
0: So you're saying Amazon is just, hey, here's a desktop. And you come in and you use it and that's that's your world. Whereas Microsoft's more like, it's my desktop or it's yours or it's the management for your stuff, like kind of ecosystem versus just delivering a, a virtual desktop.
1: Yeah, Microsoft has much more of an ecosystem around it. And and that shouldn't be surprising because you know Microsoft is this organization in transition from your old traditional on-premises world to the cloud. So, you know, they on premises, they have SCCM. Intune is eventually going to be their future as they transition features to that from their on-premises. They're also building out services for the native cloud enterprise or the the people who want to be cloud native, whereas Amazon is just more focused on the desktop or on the server and saying, yep, here you go. Just use this. We don't care what your endpoint is. We're not going to manage it for you.
2: We're not going to do any of that. Or at least that's what they have today. Now, Sean, there's a few memes floating around saying this will be the year of VDI or end user compute. You're kind of like this will be the year of IPv6 and this will be the year of the Linux desktop. Well, why do we have memes about this for the year of uh, end user compute? Why so much snarkiness? Uh,
1: Well, first off, this is the year of Linux virtual desktops. Let's get that straight. (laughs) I, I think there were a lot of expectations around back when they first came out. So if you go way back, this is probably in years when you know the early versions of a Horizon were released and people list around that set expectations that couldn't be met by the technology at the time. And I think it just became a joke of this is going to take off. But I don't, don't think we're ever really going to see a year of VDI where it gains mass adoption, where everybody's suddenly doing it. I think analogies that certain use cases it fits them really well, but it's not for everybody.
2: Okay, so you we don't think we're ever going to see it like a tipping point where really everybody's using VDI because it's just the right answer. It's it's kind of use case specific from what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah, it's. I don't think we're going to reach a tipping point where everybody's using VDI right? There's enough use cases out there where it's not required. um, And there's enough alternatives in terms of endpoint management and securing data that it may not necessarily be the right fit for every environment. And for a number of use cases or a number of user groups, they don't necessarily need a full virtual desktop. They just need a, a couple of applications published to them, or they need access to a couple of applications that are hosted in the cloud. In terms of Challenges, though, I think w- one other thing is uh, Windows 10 actually kind of raises the stakes for VDI because compared to the old enterprise standard of Windows 7, it requires things like a GPU in order to effectively run Windows. And while NVIDIA has, NVIDIA is doing some great work on that, and, and they're kind of raising the bar in terms of what you can do with a GPU, they're working on live migration on on vSphere and Zen server. They have suspend and resume migration on vSphere, so now I can put my VMs into hibernation and move them over. But there there's still a cost factor to it. There's still an infrastructure factor to it. And it, it's just not right for every customer.
0: Well you mentioned scale a little bit earlier when we're kind of figuring out when it's right for someone to perhaps pursue EUC What scale are we talking about? Is it the number of workers, or is it a budget number, or does it really just depend on the distribution of your workers or the use case that you have?
1: I think the biggest thing is going to be that it depends on the distribution of workers and their use cases, right? In terms of scale, you know, I've seen customers do 500 users. I've seen customers that are planning for 50,000 users and using a combination of published apps and virtual desktops. I've seen customers that have tried to do it, you know, on a shoestring budget, and I've seen it, I've seen customers that have said, you know, we're going to throw as much money at it as we need to make this work and give our users a good experience. So there's a whole gamut there of number of users and budget in my experience. What really makes it successful, though, is having well-defined use cases, knowing your applications, and knowing which applications will run good in a virtual desktop or will run well in the management models that you want to use for those virtual desktops.
2: Well, Sean, let's talk about costs. If I am thinking about deploying end user compute, there's a lot of mechanisms here. There's a lot of the pieces. There's hosting the desktop for the user. There's networking costs and storage space and licensing the OS. And then all the infrastructure that would be required on the back end to support all of that. How do you do do that math?
1: Really large spreadsheets. (laughs) So, no. (laughs) So, I mean, to start with, I, I think the initial cost calculations come down to infrastructure, right? What am I paying for my data center components? You know, what do I need for storage? What do I need for compute? what do i need for top of rack networking to be able to satisfy that that requirement or those requirements that's the first place and and usually i think that's the place that gives customers the most the most sticker shock initially right because now you're talking about spending however much it is to buy a vblock or a nutanix infrastructure or your storage and compute separately just to host desktops that, you know, you may have paid $800 a desktop for. So that's the first place. In terms of storage, there is a factor that you have to consider for profiles, applications, user data. Usually those costs are significantly lower unless we're talking about users who have terabytes of data and you have to buy them their own NetApp or Isilon. We have run across that once or twice, but that's usually rare. I think the biggest challenges first off are outside of the data center are around networking. There is a requirement to have really good high bandwidth, low latency WAN links. A lot of customers I've seen who've taken on VDI aren't necessarily prepared for that. And there's some ways you can estimate how much bandwidth you need, but until you actually get users in and start doing a proof of concept and recording that they're just estimates. You really need to see some numbers around how much bandwidth each user is utilizing in order to properly size your WAN links, and and that can get exp- expensive. If you're used to having a 50 meg WAN link, and now you need to go up to a gig to satisfy 250 users, that's a big change from a from a a networking cost standpoint. Mm-hmm.
2: Technology is created to solve specific problems. That's called a business model. So the question becomes, do you have a problem that EUC solves? Because you don't want to dive into this just maybe because you're a control freak. You want to be sure that the business issues map to this particular solution. There is a lot of tech debt as well as expense that you're going to incur. And that's not good if EUC is solving a problem that you don't have. What's on your mind, Chris? You know, I like the idea that end user compute or EUC can
0: and does encompass more than just the specific use cases for virtual desktops or VDI. It's not just about those virtual desktops. It's that digital last mile that Sean was talking about. That nomenclature is pretty groovy, and it makes sense in my head. So I appreciate that.
2: All right, Sean, we uh, have a pretty good idea of what end-user compute is now I'm curious from the perspective of a user, because I remember way back in the day, some there's been all kinds of flavors of end user compute out there. Uh and what they were like. Sometimes it was this thin terminal that would get put in your desk and it didn't really do much other than give you a picture of the desktop that was happening somewhere way back in the data center. So what what do you get these days if I'm an end user of this end user compute solution? Am I using a desktop or a laptop or those thin clients still around?
1: Yes There are still some of those thin client-type devices around. They're not as common as they used to be.
0: Yay! Um,
1: (laughs) Because So VMware and Citrix have have done this thing now where they've started putting all these value-add services into their solutions. And they're solving the big problems like Skype for Business really stunk in VDI. Well, how do we fix it? And that means you have to put something on the local endpoint. I I want to access my local drives or I have this scanner over here that for some reason I need to bring into my virtual desktop in order to accomplish what I what I'm doing to make those things kind of work. There's a software component that has to be installed on the endpoint. So what we're seeing today is people still have laptops. You know, they may have repurposed desktops. The thin clients that exist aren't really thin clients. They're like these micro-format PCs, so they're an, at least a Celeron or an i3. And they're just running some sort of customized flavor of Linux with the Horizon or Citrix or Amazon client on them. So I could get access to things like a local webcam or a local scanner or Skype for business.
0: Yeah, hopefully also your local fax machine, too. That's a very important peripheral but as a user, when I log on, do I get the same desktop? Is it my desktop? Because I know there's like kind of kiosk versions of desktops. You know, what's that experience like? Because I, I know I need my wallpaper with my rainbow kittens on it, and not having that would be a serious critical infrastructure challenge that I would file a ticket with IT for.
1: Yeah. So you may get the same desktop every time. That's what's known as a persistent desktop. And there are use cases for that. We see that with developers. Or you may get something that appears to be the same desktop every time. So there's tools that kind of run in the background that manage your profile or your, your user experience and settings. And they will capture things like your, your rainbow unicorn kitten wallpaper. And every time you sign in, it will make sure that that wallpaper is in place before you see your desktop. So you get the experience of having the same desktop without necessarily having the same desktop.
0: Well, that's, that's all that's important to me.
1: But I'm kind
0: of thinking, was taking, taking a moment, kind of a step back from the user experience between UI and, and listeners, Sean, where does that data go? <laughs> where does my wallpaper go?
1: It goes into usually a, a place out on a file s- server somewhere. There's a file server that's set up with you know folders for each user. And it will capture things like your wallpaper, your Outlook signature, other application settings that you may have customized, and it'll put them out there on this file share. As a user, you may not actually see where that file share is or even know about it, but when you sign in, it's going to pull that stuff down. When you sign out, it's going to put it back. So that way, every time you sign in, it follows you.
2: It doesn't sound much different than what it was 15-odd years ago with early Citrix implementations on top of Windows NT, etc., cetera. That's, that's a lot of how that got done. Roaming profiles, so, man. Yeah. It's all about those roaming yeah, really, profiles. Very, <laughs> a lot of similarities. So what about offline stuff, though, Sean? I mean, if I can't get to the network, can't get to my EUC and have all the stuff loaded off my server share, and all I really want to do is just edit a file in Word, is there a way I can do that?
1: Three years ago, there was. They used to have the ability to do offline desktops where you could kind of check them out and it would download a copy of the desktop locally. And then you'd occasionally have to get back on the network to either check it back in or to download updates. Thankfully, all that technology has pretty much gone by the wayside. right? So you're not really doing offline desktops anymore. The way technology has shifted is that for a lot of customers in a lot of environments they have you know something like sharepoint online or onedrive or box or dropbox or some solution like that where now i can securely put my data in the cloud or on something and i can copy it locally to my phone to my ipad to whatever endpoint i'm using and i can make those edits offline so like if i'm on a plane for a couple of hours and the Wi-Fi which never gets overloaded and it never drops when you're over a lake if I need to work on a document I can just save it to onedrive make sure it's synced to my make sure it's synced to my laptop and I can work without having access to the internet
2: so just for clarification am I still somehow when I'm working offline in my EUC environment
1: so in those cases like I'm not actually connected to my EUC environment at all Data is being synced to my local endpoint. I'm not connected back to my data center. I'm not necessarily using a, a managed device from the perspective of my enterprise. At most, it's something like a file transfer tool. And that's all that I'm using to sync my data.
2: Got it. Got it. So I've just got a couple of different environments. I've got an offline solution that allows me to work offline, sync that data. And then when I'm in my EUC, it is also wired into that syncing solution so that my data can be accessed from there as well. Correct. Yeah, because you got to
0: do work while you're out fishing on the lake. I mean, that's that's a, that's a a P0, man. <laughs> that's important. Let's switch gears a little bit and kind of take the eyeballs of an architect looking at EUC and especially the design around it. The first place I wanted to talk about was technical skills related to the data center, because you alluded on it a little bit earlier, Sean, that there's a sticker shock when you look at the infrastructure and there's a lot of quote unquote stuff that it takes to build out this EUC environment. So kind of let's, let's talk about storage, you know, what are the things you're looking at or concerned over when it comes to constructing the IO stream and kind of the profiling for workloads that are EUC in nature?
1: That's a great question, Chris. Uh, And A couple of years ago, this was actually a bigger challenge because Flash wasn't as prevalent in the data center. So you had to size your environment to get the number of IOPS for a boot storm. You would have to profile your Windows machines, see how many IOPS they used on boot, multiply that by theoretically the number of desktops that could be booting up, and then you'd have to size your storage for that.
0: And by profiling, you literally mean like sit there and watch like a normal physical desktop and kind of record what it was doing and then apply that to, all right, if this were in the data center, what would the aggregate of that be?
1: Kind of, but we have software that does that for us. We'd have to deploy that across a a fleet of desktops and then aggregate the results and look at a report and and whatnot.
0: Got it. And deploying software across, you know, hundreds or thousands of desktops. that's (laughs) That's
1: easy. Exactly. Right? You know, just go to each desktop with the installer. But today it's it's still an issue, but it can be less of an issue because Flash is much more prevalent. And for a while we we saw, you know, hybrid arrays be really popular. Tintry was a really, really common one that we saw in end user computing solutions. We saw things like Nutanix and Vxrail, which had at least a flash tier that you could read and write to locally, so we got rid of the storage bottlenecks by introducing a lot more flash to the environment, and it became less of an issue. Now, it is still possible to have a bootstorm, but it's less likely to have as big of an impact as it used to, you know, five years ago.
0: Got it. And and I'll pour, I'll pour a little virtual liquor out for Tentry. I just saw they're basically going away. It's very sad. Switching gears, though, storage, I got it. Flash, awesome. You know, spinning disk, not so awesome. What about the network, though? We 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 can't just add Flash to the network. So there's obviously the WAN you'd have to consider to get into it. And then, I mean, to me, the, the challenge is like, that's a lot of I.O. being shoved around. We're talking about the profile stuff being loaded and then offloaded and everyone trying to get to like the same resource internally. What are the considerations you think of for the networking when it comes to constructing one of these EUC offerings?
1: So the big thing is... What is the WAN experience like for the users? Because if, if the WAN or the, or I should say WAN or internet for remote access doesn't have enough bandwidth, or if it's constrained in some way, users are going to see this choppy screen experience. It's going to have slow refreshes. The, the keystrokes are going to be delayed by seconds. So you want to make sure you have enough bandwidth to support what your users are doing. The best way to find that out is to actually run a POC, get users in there, don't do a lot of tuning, but then monitor the heck out of it, right? How much bandwidth is each user using? What's their experience like? How much bandwidth then will you need to procure in order to scale to the number of users you're expecting to have? Or, or what other tweaks do you have to make to the system to be able to give users a good experience without necessarily breaking the bank and VMware and Citrix they have their network tuning guides as well so there there may be changes you have to make to your network configuration around you know how it ha- how it drops packets or how it handles contention haven't seen the need to implement those in too many environments because the protocols have improved but it, it's still something that they have out there
0: got it And then what about learning the EUC software suites themselves? You you mentioned VMware and Citrix a lot. What kind of skills do you need if you want to enter this realm as it relates to those applications and and everything necessary to kind of get into the EUC environment?
1: Yeah, and and that's also a great question, Chris. I I mention VMware and Citrix a lot because they're kind of the two mainstays, right? If you're considering a solution, you're looking at one or the other. The big skills that you need when it comes to delivering end-user computing solutions, uh, first is troubleshooting. Right? I mean, I think that goes across the board for anything we do in the data center. Right? You have to be able to troubleshoot the environment, and you have to be able to troubleshoot this from both a user level and a data center level.
0: So because it's a bit what- more than yeah. just the data center stuff, right? It's actually – you have to talk to people, which is not fun. But then you're talking to, like, end users, right? Printers and scanners and, like, stuff that... It, it sounds really tough to, on one hand, be dealing with flash arrays and WAN accelerators, and on the other hand, like, why won't my printer print? Like, that's a huge skill width, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. And uh, the, the, the biggest question, I think, it, that users will send into a help desk is, my desktop is slow. Well, what does that mean? And so, as a... As an administrator, as an as a engineer who's supporting one of these environments, you have to be able to investigate this starting from the user perspective, understand what they mean by this is slow, and then be able to take that into the data center and be able to dig down either into the network or into the storage or into the compute and find out what's actually causing that performance issue.
0: Mm. Taking very limited sets of data and translating it into a solution is tough. And I, I want to revisit kind of my final thought on, on the architecture here is something we talked about earlier in the show around security and, and the fact that you're allowing people to bring in their own stuff, you know, their own devices and phones and whatnot. A, you know, how do you prevent people from just stealing stuff? Because there, you know, data loss prevention, compliance, regulatory control, there's GDPR. Now there's so many considerations. What are some thoughts around the security aspect and, and the, kind of what you're looking at as an architect and what tools you have at your disposal?
1: So the big thing around designing security for an EUC solution is to start by understanding the security posture for the customer or the environment that you're working in. That's critical because every customer or every organization has different requirements around what they need to do. What a bank needs to do is going to be different than what a hospital needs to do. So you have to start with where they need to be and you have to understand how those regulations will impact the features that you can implement a lot of these solutions have the ability to redirect usb drives into it they have the ability to redirect local client drives or local printers so once you understand what their security posture is you know you kind of know what features you have to be able to turn or be able to turn off and turn on and that goes a long way towards you know helping secure the environment From a data center side or an administrative side, all these solutions offer things like robust role-based access control. So I can turn on specifically what I want administrators to do. I can segregate them to specific things in the environment. And one thing I like to, to show different customers is when you want to be able to restrict help, like a help desk engineer or a help desk Technician to specific features in the environment. So like they you only want them to be able to look up where a user is so they can do a remote session to help support them, versus you know, being able to go in and, and delete a desktop pool or delete a user's desktop. You know, so you, you have the ability to control that. Checking out a desktop the way you
0: check out a book sounds horrific, and I'm kind of glad that it's dead because when I was doing this uh, kind of consulting, everyone talked about it and setting up the transfer server. And, and honestly, whenever someone tried it, no one liked it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy that's dead. Also, EUC seems like the ultimate silo busting. You know, we obviously love busting silos here on the knots, and I'm thinking about all the skills that you need to deliver a quality EUC experience. And you have to almost literally bring everyone to the table when it comes to these projects, which seems pretty cool. What about you, Ethan?
2: I thought it was interesting that offline work has evolved in the EUC world to leverage secure services like Dropbox, for example, because... With an end user, it helps if you give them what they expect because that can reduce training requirements and it can maybe eliminate shadow IT sorts of answers to common problems in some cases. I guess maybe another way to put it, when technology functions the way a user expects it to function, that's going to reduce support requirements. And I think that's a really big deal in a solution like EUC because it's just by design it's potentially going to be support intensive with all the infrastructure that's going on back there to make it work.
0: Well, at this point, Sean, I think we've nerded out a bit on the deeper ideas behind EUC and definitely challenged some of the simplicity thoughts that I had. You know, it's just end user compute. Whoa, there's a lot more underneath it. Let's actually say that, okay, I'm going to go forward with this whole EUC thing. I'm an enterprise environment. I've decided to deploy this as an offering. The next steps would be what? Obviously, I have to design the architecture. Just kind of high level, Sean, walk me through how you approach the problem and what you're thinking about. When someone comes up to you says, yeah, I want to do this, for those that are listening kind of out there in the world?
1: That's a great question. And I think the place where I would want to start is understanding who my users are. What users am I going to put in this? What are their applications? What sort of requirements do they have? A lot of what goes into designing the data center infrastructure is actually understanding who the users are. So that'd be like a a task
0: worker versus a developer, you know, kind of heavy versus light, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, you know, and it it kind of goes a little bit deeper than just task worker versus developer. It's what are the applications they're using? Do they need things like GPUs? If, If You know, I may have engineers who are just working with Excel and PDFs, and I may have other engineers who are actually doing design work. And what I give them to be able to support their job may be radically different. So I may need, you know, to provide specific hardware for some people in order for them to be able to actually use their applications. But the other thing around applications that you have to consider is There's different types of desktops, right? And we kind of mentioned that a little bit earlier. There's persistent desktops where, you know, the user gets that same desktop every time. And we didn't cover, we didn't use this term specifically, but there's non-persistent desktops where when I sign in, I have a tool that makes it look like it was the same desktop, but I have no idea if it was actually that same machine or not. And there's some applications that play really well with non-persistent desktops. And I would say there's actually quite a few, But there's also these older legacy applications that, you know, may be licensed by the Mac address or the UUID.
0: I'm thinking about those old ones that had the the USB stick that you'd have to stick into the computer and that would have like the key on it. Like,
1: oh, I hated those applications. Yep. (laughs) Not everything has network licensing. Not everything has cloud licensing. Not everything writes to a location where I can make it portable. So I have to understand what those applications are and how they work in some ways to be able to define the type of desktop I'm deploying. Once I kind of know my users and my use case, I can then go size it. Once I have it sized and I can start deploying, the big thing to the approach of a EUC design, though, is making sure you understand those users. You don't want to get back into a corner where you've planned for something And then they come back and say, well, no, we overlooked this application and it's going to change the entire design. And now you have to go out and order four times as much storage because you have to use persistent desktops.
2: So, Sean, how do you avoid making mistakes in that then? Who are the the stakeholders, the people you need to gather around the table to make sure that you get the design right?
1: So key things are obviously the desktop engineering team. They're number one. Because they're usually going to be the people who understand how the users use their current endpoints. You also want to have application owners. So if once you identify your use case, if there's specific application owners that are relevant to that use case, you want to have them involved. Because, again, they're going to be the people who know the specifics about the applications. Another key stakeholder, though, and I think this one gets overlooked in a lot of environments, is, is the security team. The security team has a lot of say in how remote access is going to work, what security software is going to be deployed on the endpoints, and how that software needs to be configured. And I've been in workshops where security wasn't at the table on day one. There were a lot of decisions made. And then when security was brought in, they turned around and said, no, this doesn't work because of these reasons, uh, we have to go back to the drawing board. So security is key, and having them involved early on makes projects go much smoother.
0: Okay, well, you've got folks using this system, and they're happy, and things are great. Let's just assume everything's happy. That's not ever true in IT, but you know everybody's happy. Now, you need to upgrade or patch or do a migration of some sort. How do you take something this massive offline? Is it modular? Can you take pieces of it over? Like, kind of express to me how much of a pain in the butt this
1: is. Ooh, yeah. It really can be a huge pain to try to upgrade. I figured that when your
0: first reaction was, ooh, I was like, oh, that's not
1: going to be a good one. (laughs) So, I was recently working with a client. Uh, They had a multi site horizon environment that they wanted to upgrade. The nice thing was they were not a 24 by 7 operation. They had it running in two data centers and most of the users who would be impacted were in this data center. We were doing last the challenge with that is most of their users work between like 6 AM and 9 PM, right? So we had to pick Fridays. We had to do this after midnight, It had to be well communicated that this change was, or that this upgrade was coming. And yes, we had to do this in pieces. You know, we had to pick one environment. We had to upgrade that move to the next environment, upgrade that there were other components of the environment that didn't get upgraded because they would be upgraded when they were going to do their next image refresh because it impacted how they managed profiles. So it becomes one of those, you have to break it up into chunks. You have to pick the pieces that are going to have the least impact first. And then you just have to communicate it very well that this change is coming. And that's for an upgrade. Now, migrations get a lot more complicated. If I if I have an existing environment and rather than do an in-place upgrade, I decide to do build out a new environment and migrate over, that becomes a little bit more challenging because you don't want to impact the end user experience. You don't want to change, for instance, how they're the URL that, that they've trained themselves to use to access the system. So that gets to be a little bit more complex. And then you have to somehow integrate the old environment with the new environment, which VMware has finally just got gotten around to supporting. And there's, there's just a lot of challenges around it. The best thing I can say is you want to define your process You want to test it, validate it in a non-production lab, try to get it as close to production as possible so you understand exactly what could happen, and then once you've gone through all your testing, then you can go ahead with production.
0: Well, awesome. It sounds like uh, once you get it up and running, things are great, but uh, definitely get some help when it comes to upgrading or heaven help you if you're looking to migrate. Sean, I want to thank you very much for joining the show. And again, for those listening, if they want to get in contact with you on the web or Twitter, where are you on the web?
1: Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at, at Sean P. Massey. I also blog at thevirtualhorizon.com. And there is a link on there to email me as well.
0: Sweet. And that's it, my friends, for today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast. If you're a social creature, and we all know you are, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter, and my blog is wallnetwork.com, or my delightful friend Ethan, he's at ecbanks on Twitter, and he's blogging over at packapushers.net. For more of our data knots shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetbutchers.net. You're gonna find the data knots talking about containers, conferences, certifications, and user compute moving to the cloud. It's all there, it's a plethora of delightful food for your ears. Until then, may your server lights blink, your desktop be snappy, and your cables be cleanly managed.
1: drive through scene.
0: Yeah. You need you need to adjust your Pringles can internet a little bit. <laughs> 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 Aim it It's hitting a tree. <laughs>